My wife and I, though, are big fans of sitcoms. Any sitcom fans out there? So we, we have a busy life. We both have full-time jobs. Um, we have three kids at home, and when we get to the end of the day, we get all the kids in bed. We're just, like, wiped. And so we usually head downstairs, turn on the TV, and we, we got to stream something just to, like, decompress from the day. Uh, we don't watch a whole lot of movies at home because we get to the end of the day, and I might bring up a, a movie option, and Chelsea's like, that's too much of a commitment. <laughs> too much of a commitment. Um, and so what we do is we, we find some TV show to watch, and it's almost always a sitcom because it's got to be light. At the end of a hard day, it's got to be something light and funny, right? Well, a couple years ago, uh, some friends of ours recommended a non-sitcom show to us called New Amsterdam. Any New Amsterdam fans out there? All right, yeah, Ryan. <laughs> we got a, uh, got a few New Amsterdam fans. So New Amsterdam is not a sitcom. Uh, New Amsterdam is a medical drama, and it focuses on this hospital in New York City. And the story begins, it's actually based on a, a true story, uh, the, originally based on a true story, but the, the story begins, the series begins with a new medical director being brought into the new Amsterdam hospital, and he is being brought in there to kind of shake things up a bit. Now what happens is he shakes things up more than what even the hospital board was really anticipating. You see, what Dr. Max Goodwin does when he comes in is he says, I actually want to place our patients and our providers first instead of money, which the hospital board isn't exactly thrilled about, but it, it makes for compelling drama, right? Um, well, every step of the way, every time something comes up, uh, Max Goodwin, as the medical director, he doesn't try to shift it off to somebody else. He doesn't try to say, oh, uh, hand it off to this doctor or to this nurse or whoever might be able to deal with it. Dr. Max shows up and he says this line, how can I help? I'd, I'd be interested to know how many times in every show, every episode, he shows up and says, how can I help? I absolutely love that line. How can I help? He's not even sure what he can do or if he'll be able to do anything, but he asks the question. He goes out of his way to ask the question, how can I help? So, like I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of this series, which we've been calling Back to Basics, which is an opportunity for us to say, rather than going back to normal, what are the most important things now that have always been the most important things, rather than rushing back to this hypothetical normal, what if we instead said, let's focus on our values, the things that are most important. So we have spent these last several weeks focusing on our values as a church, which we also think are pretty good values for us as individuals. And to do that, we have been looking at the story of the exile and the return from exile. Uh, the exile was this stake-in-the-ground moment for the people of Israel and Judah when uh, they were forcibly removed from their home, brought to a foreign land, uh, removed from everything that was familiar. Nothing was going to be the same. And what it meant was they had to rethink who they were, who God was, and what the world was, was actually like. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about our first value, which is, uh, which is about uh, nurturing, healing, wholeness, and beauty, which is like the experience of grace. The exiles are given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. Most of them don't go, 
But the few who do go have this vision in their mind. They have this, uh, this belief, this conviction that, uh, that grace is still possible. That, that the goodness of God is still possible. If not just for them, then for the people who might come after them. So they decide to return. Last week, we talked about our value of expanding our circle of inclusion. Uh, for those who went back, there was this, this open question of how are we going to relate to people who are different from us? As we rebuild, are we simply going to rebuild walls to keep other people out, people who are not like us out? Or are we going to rebuild with gates that allow other people to come in, trusting that we're actually going to be better off for the people who arrive behind us. So, so that is like a conversation that continues for literally hundreds of years. What are they going to do? But when they arrive, they have a job to do. They have to begin rebuilding. That was part of the agreement that they made that allowed them to come back. Yes, you can leave Babylon, you can go back to Jerusalem, but you gotta get to work. So that story is told in a couple different books that we have in the Old Testament. One is Ezra, which we've read through a couple, uh, we've read from a couple times, and then also the book of Nehemiah. So here's how that rebuilding, here's a little bit of what that rebuilding was like. This is from Nehemiah chapter 3. Okay, I'm just going to apologize because these names are ridiculous. <laughs> then Eli Eliashib, the high priest and his priestly colleagues, arose and built the sheep gate. They dedicated it and erected its doors, working as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanel. The men of Jericho built adjacent to it, and Zachar, son of Imri, built adjacent to them. The sons of Hassanah rebuilt the fish gate. They laid its beams and positioned its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Merimeth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, worked on the section adjacent to them. Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabzebel, <laughs> worked on the section next to them. And Zadok, son of Bana, worked on the section adjacent to them. The men of Tekoya worked on the section adjacent to them, but their town leaders would not assist with the work of their master. Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodea, worked on the Geshana gate. They laid its beams and positioned its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Adjacent to them worked Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Merathite, who were men of Gibeon and Mizpah. These towns were under the jurisdiction of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhaya, the member of the goldsmith's guild, worked on the section adjacent to him. Hananiah, a member of the perfumer's guild, worked on the section adjacent to him. They plastered the city's wall of Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, head of the half-district of Jerusalem, worked on the section adjacent to them. We're stopping there. That was, that was only nine verses. There's another 23 that follow this. <laughs> Same stuff. Names, what they're doing, 
the, the stuff that they're working with as they're rebuilding, and then they, like, keep working along the wall. Here's who was working there and what they were doing. Here's what, who was working there and what they were doing. Here's who was working there and what they were doing. So there's these names of these people, these names of these tribes that are included who are, who are getting to work on, on the building and the rebuilding. You hear about, like, the specific proje- projects that they're working on. There's beams and doors and bolts and bars. Here's what they're using for the actual construction. Holy cow. Who, who has any interest in that? Any of you have any interest in that? You don't know these people. You don't, unless you can envision what the wall of Jerusalem is like. You don't know what the actual projects are. Why on earth would we care about this? It, it, it almost feels like a, um, like a list, a project list, and then the accompanying, accompanying um, Menard's shopping list. Here's the, here's, the people, here's the project. Here's the people who are responsible for the project. Here's what they got to go to Menards to get. Who, who on earth has any interest in this? Why is this important to include in, in our Bible? Well, here's the deal. These exiles have come back, and they are finding a place to plug in. They're finding a place to get involved, to use their gifts and passions to contribute to something that is bigger than themselves. They're not just sitting around. They're not just like, like we talked about the first week. They're not back in Babylon where they're sitting by the shores of Babylon weeping because uh, things haven't gone their way. They've shown up. They're getting to work. They're doing something. It's almost as if they've shown up and said, how can I help? There is this, um, there's this idea, this conviction maybe even, that when we get involved in something, we do so because we are, we have like these deep convictions or values or, or, or thoughts about that specific thing. We're so invested in it and that's why we do this thing. So a, a couple examples like uh, the people who go out and protest something. They go out and protest because they have these deeply held values about this thing that they are protesting. You might even say this about church. You show up for church because you have these deeply held convictions and values and beliefs, and so this is why you show up. What's actually the case is that a lot of the time, if not most of the time, that's actually exactly backwards. Sociologists call this the biological consequences. Anybody heard of biological consequences before? So the idea is this. Actually, the way that a lot of people's convictions and values and ideas about the world are formed not through, like, already previously having these ideas, but are formed by their experiences, by getting involved in something. And it it starts to shape the way they see themselves, the way they see the world, maybe even the way that they see God. So, for instance, a protest you might show up for a protest because a friend invites you. You, you might be, like, fine, fine with why you're going there, but a friend invites you. You might be excited about the energy behind it. It's something that's going on in your town, and so you show up for it. And what we find is that the people who participate in movements like that, they develop, they then develop, because of their participation, these deep-set values and beliefs and convictions that they did not have before. The same thing might be true about church. You might show up for church because a friend invited you. 
because uh, uh, someone in your family invited you, because you may have seen a parking lot that was filled on a Sunday morning, you may have noticed some energy, uh, and it was something that you wanted to check out. You, you may not have any belief or value, like any, any religious context whatsoever. But then you show up, and you get involved, and you like wade in the water, and it's through that participation with other people that you start to develop these, these values and these convictions that change the way you view yourself, the way you view the world, and maybe even the way that you view God. The Grove is a part of, our denomination is the United Methodist Church, which uh, is part of a larger movement called Wesleyanism, uh, founded originally by, based on the teachings of a guy named John Wesley. Um, old white, old dead white dude. Um, there's been a lot of old dead white dudes throughout history who have said some unhelpful things. That now we look back, we're like, that's not great. One of the things that John Wesley said that has kind of continued in, in the, the people who who's followed his tradition, and, and now we would say as a church that we have uh, adopted, is this idea that um, it, the words that he actually used was uh, social holiness. There is no holiness. There is no, like, uprightness in yourself except that which is active in the world. It is, like, fundamental that your faith is lived out. Believing is not enough. Um, You have to actually live it out in very practical ways. And so, in the United Methodist Church, when when a person becomes a member... They take what are called membership vows, and one of the things that you, when you become a member of a United Methodist Church, uh, vow to do is is this. You vow to faithfully participate in its ministries by your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. These are very active things, right? Right? So when you show up at the Grove, when it becomes apparent that you're like, uh, seeing this place as your home base, that, that maybe the Grove, Cottage Grove, is, is the place that you're going to consider as, as your home church. We don't immediately go to you and say, are you sure that you agree on these nine beliefs? And we're going to have you stand up in front of everybody and explain those, those nine beliefs? Uh, one of the first things that we say to folks that I have said to many of you is, how can we get you involved? And this is not because we have all of these positions where we need to plug you in, where we absolutely need volunteers. Don't get me wrong. We need volunteers in very specific positions in order to do what we do. We need children's ministry volunteers to to help with all of those kids out there. We need people to be uh, available for hospitality when uh, when you walk in to feel welcome. We need that. But that's not primarily why we say we want you to get involved. The idea is that by getting involved... You are making meaningful connections with other people, but you are also using your gifts and talents and your passions in a way that will help you to fit and flourish yourself. Your involvement contributes to the experience and growth of the people who are already here. Your involvement contributes to the experience and growth of the people who are not yet here and might be arriving next. But your involvement also contributes to your own experience and growth when you say how can i help 
You're helping other people, but in some ways you're actually helping to develop yourself as well. Some of you know that uh, I recently accepted a new gig as uh, a soccer coach <laughs> here in Cottage Grove. Here's me pretending I know what I'm doing. Uh, so I recently started coaching my, uh, my youngest daughter's soccer team, U4, U5, here in Cottage Grove. It, uh, I've coached before. This is my first experience coaching youth soccer, though. There's a couple reasons for that. One is that our, uh, our oldest daughter just started playing soccer last year, so I didn't have that opportunity to coach her team. The other reason I've never coached youth soccer before no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I have no idea, like, I have almost no idea what's going on with soccer. I grew up in rural northwest Wisconsin. We had no soccer program at all, no even youth soccer program. I was a football player who made fun of soccer players, okay? But then this opportunity comes up. They need a coach. They're looking for coaches, and I have a little bit of time on my hands, I have, these are only four and five year olds, so I don't have to know a whole lot. Um, I have experience coaching, and so I'm like, how can I help? Why not get involved with this? Uh, now, I've done my homework as much as I can. Uh, there's there's uh, training materials that they provide. I've read through and looked at all of those training materials. I do it before every one of our practices as well. Um, I've rewatched the two seasons of Ted Lasso to prepare, <laughs> getting my soccer coaching ready. Um, I went out and I bought my first uh, soccer uniform or kit, sh shirt, kit, whatever. Uh, Minnesota United, go Loons. Uh, like I did these things to prepare to be ready to, to coach these young kids. And yet, I also was convinced, you know what, the most important thing is not just for them to develop all these skills. The most important thing is for them to have fun and them to learn. And so at that first practice, we did not work on a, a bunch of different skills and stuff. We sat in a circle. I sat crisscross applesauce with these four and five-year-olds, and we talked about each other's names, each other's favorite animals, each other's favorite color, and what we wanted uh, the team name to be, Go Shooting Stars. <laughs> I have, I'm, not, I'm not the best soccer coach. I'm not. I'm not going to be. We have a much better soccer coach right over here, Anna. Coach Anna! She knows what she's doing. She's experienced. I, like, I'm never going to be the best soccer coach. And yet, because I said, how can I help, I'm going to be able to help provide these, these kids an opportunity to learn and grow. And you know who else is going to learn and grow too? This guy. One of these things that we have been workshopping here at the Grove, one of these sayings that uh, I don't think we've ever said publicly, is the idea that participation is the new perfection. Uh, we do not want to fill all of these positions all over this church building and outside this church building with well-paid professionals. Uh, that's, that's not a win for us. We're not trying to put on a, a great grand show. What is a win is for us to find people who want to get involved using their gifts and passions in a way that is going to help other people grow and to help them grow. And we call this, among other things, cultivating the common good. That it's not, it is for us, but it's also for 
much more than us. The win is being able to get people involved in something that they're going to use their gifts and passions. They're going to be able to contribute to something that is much bigger than themselves. So as a part of this series, we've done two different things at the end of each one of the messages. The first one is revealing an icon, which is going up on those panels right outside these doors. And you're not going to be able to see it. There it is. Take a quick... Did you get it? <laughs> You'll be able to walk out and look at it. So it's a, it's a watering can, right? And the idea is that cultivating the common good, just like cultivating a garden, it's work. And it takes time, and it takes investment. And sometimes it's as slow as, like, individual drops. But over time, if you pay attention to it, something beautiful is going to grow that is going to benefit, hopefully, not just yourself, but lots of other people. Uh, and then the second thing that we have done each one of these weeks is uh, hear from one of the newer people to the Grove and their story and how it connects to this value. So this week we get to hear from the Ball family if it's going to work. Yeah, you can listen. Crank it up. So we switched to uh, the Grove in uh, Woodbury. And we, we heard about this church and we're like, it's closer to our house, let's try it out. And we got hooked from there. I think partially also we were looking for a place that was, it felt like uh, closer to home, both like emotionally, but also geographically. Um, I really like working in the tech booth. It's really fun. And I enjoy the songs, they... <laughs> I, I enjoy the sermons myself, I love being uh, challenged and uh, being asked to you know, think critically about you know, stories and think about the ways that maybe we haven't thought about them before. I always feel like uh, I'm treated like a smart person coming in, that it's not just, here, let me tell you what to believe now. I, and I love the feel of the church. It just feels, we talked about how it feels like scrappy. Like, it's a good place to um, figure out what you think and what you believe. Really like that about this church. Kids are really welcome. It's just fun, okay? People come from all kinds of different uh, faith experiences and backgrounds, and like, it's uh, it's there's no there's no wrong way to walk in the door because it's it's new and everybody is learning and everybody is getting to know each other. So you're you're part of something, um, part of a new movement. Uh, you also get really good stage directions. Like, they're going to tell you, okay, now now we're going to stand up, and now we're going <laughs> to sing a song, and now we're going to do this thing, and why? There's nothing to fear out they grow. They, they're just inclusive, and you won't feel left out. I think uh, it's um, aggressively welcoming. You know, it's, it's friendly and warm and accepting uh, and... Um, if you're if you're looking for a way to contribute to uh, to growing goodness, you know it, it, you can you can plug in uh, and feel connected and feel welcomed right away. The balls are not here today, but let's give them a hand, anyways. Uh, little Theo would not stop talking. 
So I had to do a lot of video editing to get it down to two minutes and 38 seconds. Like, that's fantastic. The, the fact that their kids can feel welcomed and encouraged and, like, they can find a place to belong as well. Alex, who you may have seen just a little bit, Alex is often in, in the tech desk in the back. He just turned 12 this week. He's, he's like running the cameras and resetting the presets on the camera so that other people who are much older than him are, are able to get involved. So like as we, as we gather this new community, as we come out of this pandemic, what could matter more now and always has than uh, cultivating the common good, finding a place for you to contribute in a way that is not, uh, yes for yourself, but also much beyond yourself. Um, if you are looking for ways to get involved, we've got a list, a web page with all of these different things for all of these different, um, all of these different teams that we have. And I would encourage you in just a moment, the baskets are going to go around. You can drop in the basket, your insert, and just put volunteer opportunities, and I will follow up with you, and we'll find a place. If you don't know your gifts or passions, you're like, I think I want to get involved, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm good at. Uh, check that as well, and I will follow up with you, and I do this thing called strengths finder coaching, where we, uh, we take an assessment, and I walk through, Here's, here are the things that make you unique, and where you might be able to leverage those strengths to do really good, really uh, fun things to contribute to the common good. So, may that be so.